We're going to Matthew chapter 5, where we've been for the last month or so. We're still there. We'll be there for a little while more. But today we're looking at verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. I'll read. You read along with me. Let's read out loud with gusto. I'll drop off. You keep reading. So let's jump into God's word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Continue. title for today's message is How Jesus Changes Everything, an introduction to radical righteousness, how Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the God of life and that, Lord, you are calling people to yourself and that you are transforming lives. We pray that you will use the coming moments to do exactly that. Have your way, O God. Make much of your name. Be glorified and meet every person under the sound of my voice right where they are. We thank you for it, Lord God. Our confidence is in you, your word, and your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many of you know what that is up on the... Know what it is. If you know what it is, just yell it out. Pastor Tim, you're you're not allowed. What is that? A crop... Oh, my gosh. We have crop circle enthusiasts among us. Or you read the email that went out the other day, perhaps. One of those two. That's an actual crop circle that was found in England in the year 2009, I'm going to read to you a short write-up that appeared in the paper a few days after the crop circle appeared. Let's look at the headline. Mayan apocalypse crop circle appears at Silbury Hill from 8 July 2009. Here it is. A 350-foot crop circle of an ancient Mayan symbol said to be a sign of the impending apocalypse has appeared next to Silbury Hill in Wiltshire. The giant pattern, thought to represent a traditional Mayan headdress, appeared next to the tallest prehistoric man-made mound in Europe last week. Members of the crop circle community believe that the mystic symbol is a signal of the end of the 5,126-year Mayan long count calendar on December 21st, 2012. Karen Alexander, a crop circle enthusiast, said, 
This is one of the most interesting crop circles I have ever seen. It is definitely a Mayan symbol, and we are sure that it is linked to the Mayan calendar, which ends in 2012. It appears to be a warning about the world coming to an end when the calendar does. For the ancient Maya, reaching the end of a cycle was a momentous event, so we're, looking, so we're taking this crop circle very seriously as an indicator of a possibly huge event in 2012. The article says at the end here, crop circle theorists believe that the patterns are created by UFOs during nocturnal visits or caused by natural phenomena such as unusual forms of lightning striking the earth. Well, I'm not here to uh, convince you of that reality of crop circles. I'm not here to do that at all. But can you just imagine for a moment, just for a minute, imagine that you are a true believer in crop circles. And you wake up on Tuesday and Harvey's field right next to you has that in it. And so you're believing that UFOs came down overnight. They put in this Mayan crop circle that tells you that in three years, December 21st, 2012, it's 2009 when this happened, that the world is going to end. If you are a true believer in crop circles, then everything in your life changes right then and there, doesn't it? Right? So how you're relating to people, you're going to change that. If you have some money in savings, you're not saving for 2013 anymore or for 2020. It's like it's ending December 21st, 2012. Hallelujah, it didn't happen. I hope you all know that. So, But when you believe that, it changes everything about your life. Today, looking at these verses in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, I think that you, you'll see, I hope that you'll see, that what Jesus is doing here changed everything. Not only for first century disciples, but it should change everything for you and I as followers of Jesus Christ. These verses starting in verse 17, actually begin the body of Jesus' sermon. So what we've been doing for the last few weeks is actually the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has the best introductions of anyone, right? So he does this introduction, and now we go into the body of the sermon. Listen, if you catch what's here, you'll really understand well the rest of the sermon. If you miss it, you won't be able to understand the rest of this chapter or the next three chapters won't make a lot of sense to you in Matthew's gospel. So here we are looking at this, and today I just want to lay out for you the main idea of the passage. Let's lay out the main idea. So here it is. Jesus' life perfectly fulfilled the purpose of God's law, and he invites you to live according to that pattern. So we're going to look at both pieces of this. Jesus' life perfectly fulfills the purpose of God's law, and he invites you and I to live according to that pattern. So let's start with the very first part of it. Part one, Jesus' life perfectly fulfilled the purpose of God's law. Look at verse 17. Jesus starts by saying these words, 
do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm going to stop right there. He says, before he tells you what he is doing, he first tells you what he's not doing. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. When he's saying, don't think this way, he's saying that for a reason. He's saying he he knows that people will easily twist his words. People will easily misunderstand and misconstrue what he is saying as he goes into the rest of this chapter. You'll see he challenges the popular understanding of the Old Testament and the law, and he turns it on his head in some way. So he wants you to know, first of all, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. And that's a warning, not only to those who were there with Jesus as he's preaching this message, not only to those that Matthew was immediately writing to in the first century, but it is a warning to us. Jesus is saying, don't get it twisted. Listen closely to what I'm about to say. And he says, again, in this verse, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. When he speaks of the law and the prophets, that's simply a shorthand way for a first century Jew to talk about the whole of the Old Testament. Torah, Nevaim, and Katuvim, the law, the writings, and the prophets. He can just say the law and the prophets. So he says, don't get it twisted here. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. The word he uses there, abolish, is a strong word. It's usually used when you talk about tearing down a building just knocking a a building that was intact, making it rubble. He says, I didn't come to knock down and make rubble the law of God, the Old Testament, all the writings that God has given us up till now. I didn't come to set it aside and act like it doesn't matter. Don't get me wrong here. Make sure you understand this, Jesus says. And so we need to understand that because... Many times today, even in the 21st century, Christians kind of feel like what I really need is the New Testament. The Old Testament, that's old, right? That's what it says, Old Testament. Don't need that. I need the New Testament, the New Covenant. And and I know that Jesus, he did everything. So I don't have to obey or fulfill the law because Jesus did that. We're going to look at how that is a misunderstanding for us today. So let me illustrate it this way. Years ago, my daughter, as a teenager, was very excited about the Lord. I'm glad she still is. But she was real excited about the Lord. She was down in Houston, Texas with a good friend of hers. And they were, uh, they, they needed to catch a plane back to Philly in a couple hours. But they were out somewhere in a Houston suburb. And they were praising the Lord. And they were considering what great faith might look like. They were standing next to a pond as they were doing this. And so they're talking about faith and they're remembering the amazing faith of Peter, right? When Jesus is out on the water and and Peter says, if it's you, Lord, bid me come. And Jesus says, come to me. And Peter walks on water. So my daughter and her friend say, you know what? If Peter can walk on water, why can't we? I don't see any reason. I remember somewhere in the Bible, Jesus said, you'll do greater works than than these. 
Walking on water is a pretty great work. We can do that. I remember another place he says, if you say to a mountain, be thrown into the heart of the sea, it has to obey you. So, my goodness, there's no reason we can't walk on the water, even though we've got to catch a plane in a little bit. So, my daughter and her friend muster up this great faith, mustard seed faith, growing faith, and they take their first step onto the pond. Or I should probably say, into the pond. Now, now, that's one thing, they're wet, but here's where they, they really got great faith because even though they got wet, they said, okay, Lord, I know we can do this. So they took step number two, into the pond, not on the pond. The pond never held them up. What's the problem going on with this? What they're calling faith isn't faith at all, right? What they're calling faith is presumption. Peter walked in faith. Jesus told Peter, come out here on the lake. And as long as Peter's eyes were on Jesus, he was able to walk on that water. My daughter and her friend weren't walking in faith. They were walking in presumption. They were curious. They thought, maybe we can do this. God, why won't you do this? Here's the the issue for us. Why do I share that story? Simply because of this, many Christians today are walking in presumption rather than in faith. We're getting wet over and over and over again because we don't understand that the law of God is as relevant to us today as it was when Moses came down from that mountain. God is revealing himself, his righteousness, his goodness, his mercy, and his love through his law, and it's relevant to us today. Today, it it didn't stop when Jesus came on the scene. So when we live as if the Old Testament isn't valid, it's worse than just getting wet. We're, We're walking into the disciplining hand of our Father when we are outside of the boundaries of his law and commands. But let's look again at verse 17 because I want you to see the contrast here. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. But the second part says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This phrase here, and particularly what the word fulfill means here, is in many ways the key to this entire section of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. And if we get it wrong, we won't understand what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. So we've really got to get this right. Let me start by what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, and it doesn't refer to Jesus' perfect obedience to the law. Now, Jesus did perfectly obey the law, but that's not what he's talking about here. If he was, there's a lot of other words he could have used. Keep the law, obey the law. There are other words that Jesus could have used But he uses a very specific word, and it's a word that's used in a very specific way in Matthew's gospel. Over and over again, Matthew uses the word fulfill. Jesus fulfills scripture. This was done so that Jesus might fulfill what was said. He does that over and over again. He does that, for example, with the virgin birth, right? This was to fulfill 
what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the virgin will be with child. Or this was done to fulfill what he said through the prophet Zechariah, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. There are 54 direct quotations in Matthew's gospel of the Old Testament. At least 262 allusions or verbal parallels with the Old Testament. Matthew is writing this gospel. It makes sense that he would do that because he's specifically writing the gospel so that Jewish people will be convinced that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is his specific audience. And so he's talking about Jesus as fulfillment. So what does that mean in Matthew 5, 17? It it means this, that everything, Jesus is saying that everything in the Old Testament points forward to me, Jesus is saying. And that he himself is the fulfillment and the final destination of all that the Old Testament looked forward to. So what he's telling us is that Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament matters. God's law that he's laid out is good, and it is for us, and it's important for us not only to grasp it, but to live it. We'll see what that means as we go through these verses. So let me give you the CLSV version of Matthew 5, 17. That's the contemporary Larry Smith version. So let's look at this. This is Matthew 5, 17. Don't get it twisted, y'all. I'm from the South, so i got to throw in a y'all. I didn't come so that you could tear up the Old Testament and rejoice because you don't need to obey its laws anymore. No way, Jose. Sorry, Jose, I asked you if that was okay. You said it was all right. He says, I didn't come to throw out the Old Testament, but I came as the one who the Old Testament points to and brings to its perfect fulfillment. Jesus is saying God's law is good, it's wonderful, and it is life to those who embrace it. But the second point is this, not only is the Old Testament and God's law a beautiful thing for us that Jesus fulfills, but Jesus invites you and Jesus invites me to live according to his pattern. We'll see what that means as we work through these verses here. First of all, let's look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, for truly I tell you. Now, let me just comment on that. That is a phrase that you often see in the scriptures. You may see it in the gospels. Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say unto you. You know that phrase. And so this is that phrase here in Matthew. When Jesus uses that phrase, he's saying, Now, you better listen to what I'm about to say. He's saying that don't miss it. This is about to rock your world. That's what Jesus is saying. Truly, I say to you, and then look at what he says, until heaven and earth disappear. In other words, as he is about to get into the, the crux of what he's saying, the meat of what he's saying, he says, this, what I'm about to say, lasts until the end of the earth, the end of the age. Not just December 21st, 2012, not the Mayan apocalypse, but it. this is ongoing and this is important for everyone to understand and to live out until 
I come again. So Jesus is letting us know that. You'll notice I outlined the way at, at, at the end of the verse, he uses a parallelism just so that he says, don't get it wrong. Make sure you understand this until everything is accomplished, until heaven and earth disappear. This lasts as long as this world and this present age lasts. Jesus is making that clear to us. The middle of the verse talks about the crux of this matter of how we deal with the law. He says, not the smallest letter. Now that would be, in the Hebrew alphabet, a yod, which is just like a tiny little apostrophe. Not the smallest letter. He says, not the least stroke of a pen. Somebody's writing the law of God, not the most tiny stroke of a pen. He says, will by any means disappear from the law. In other words, he's saying, the whole of God's revelation to us, because Jesus and the apostles, they didn't have a New Testament yet. He says, the whole of God's written revelation continues in force until I come back again and renew the creation. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't miss it. So let's look at verse 19 as we go on from there. It all stands. And now in verse 19, he says these words. Therefore, because this is true, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is laying out here, and I laid it out that way so you can see there are two conditions, condition one and condition two, and there are two results that he lays out in this verse from the understanding that the Old Testament is something that is still in effect for us. So there are two conditions and two results. The first condition is someone who lays it aside. The result is they'll be called least in the kingdom heaven. The second condition is very simply the one who practices and teaches the commandments. He says they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there are two basic implications from this verse. The first one is this, your ability to be in and to be a part of the kingdom of heaven is not based on your performance. Somebody ought to get happy with that right now. You, you better be happy. Pastor Tim said, you better be happy with that one. That's, that's right. So it, it's interesting because what he says is that if someone lays aside, look at lays aside one of the least of these commandments. So someone that's loose with the commands and the ways of God, he says, and teaches others to be that way, he said they'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven but they're still in the kingdom of heaven. That's good news to me. But the second part, where he says, whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great, what is God saying to us? Here's a second implication of the verse. There's different levels of reward in the kingdom of heaven. God greatly rewards faithfulness in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it, it's, it's hard for me to conceive of what's better, first of all, than being in the kingdom, being in God's presence, 
not being, uh, having any shame, not having any guilt. But there is something that God is telling us here. And Jesus is saying that if you follow it this way, you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. God is telling us, Jesus is inviting us to live with eternity in mind. He's inviting us to believe that there is something at the end of this life that we have to look forward to. And he's inviting us to greatness. Let me ask you this. Are you living today with eternal rewards in mind? Are you living today with eternal rewards in mind? Jesus is saying you should be. We should be. We should want to be those who are called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people say, man, that sounds arrogant. Man, that sounds, why are you all about this being great in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus has already defined for us what that greatness is, and it doesn't look anything like the greatness of this world. It has nothing to do with your position. It has nothing to do with your economic situation. It has nothing to do with your education. It has nothing to do with your place in life. It has nothing to do with the accomplishments or things that are on your wall. It has nothing to do with any of those things. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is faithfulness to God. And faithfulness to God, we cannot separate that from walking in his commandments. Jesus said it in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. So we don't separate those things. It's impossible to do that. So how in the world, now this can become tricky. Someone might say, boy, that sounds like legalism to me. And we'll, we'll look at that more as we go through the rest of this passage. But it's not legalism at all, and we'll show you that. But what's the difference between legalism, someone that's all about the law, versus what Jesus is speaking to us here? First of all, legalism starts with a transactional idea. If I do this for God, if I can check off these boxes, and then if I don't do these other things, here's the transaction God, you owe me now. I did all these things, and I didn't do these bad things. I did the good, I didn't do the bad, and now you owe me. Legalism starts with self-effort, and it is a way, and, and we're all guilty of it at times. God, I did all these things for you. How come I'm here now? We, we can all be subject to that. But legalism, by its very nature, is transactional. And when God doesn't come through like he was supposed to, I have a license to wild out. I've got a license to do whatever I want to do because God didn't keep his part of the bargain. That's legalism. That ain't, that ain't Bible, y'all. I hope you get that. I'm not saying that's Bible. Legalism fuels addiction. Legalism fuels unfaithfulness because it's a transaction. And when God doesn't do it, he's, I've been tithing, Lord. I've been tithing. I put something on top of my tithe. How come I don't have money to pay my rent at the end of the month? Okay, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do now, God, is I'm not, not going to tithe anymore. I'm not giving you nothing. 
And I'm going to do this and that and the other thing with my money because you didn't come through like you're supposed to. That's legalism. God calls us to another way. Faithfulness is different. Faithfulness isn't motivated by getting. It's motivated by loving. It starts with loving God and always bleeds over into loving people. There is no one that can say, as James says later, I love God, or John says, I love God, but I don't love my neighbor who I can see. Faithfulness trusts God to reward us in his way at his time. And it never accuses God based on my present circumstance. That's what faithfulness does. It's giving away blessings, like we talked about last week out of the recognition that God has first blessed me. So whether I struggle or whether I'm in a prosperous place, either way, I can give thanks and glory to God. Faithfulness is married to thankfulness. And it overflows with joy for God's never-ending gracious love. I, I like that phrase, faithfulness is married to thankfulness. People that are thankful people, people that remember over and over and over again the goodness of God, what the Lord has done for me, are people who have the ability to be filled with joy. And that joy, in turn, fuels more faithfulness to God. And so it's an upward spiral of faithfulness of, of, of joy in God and of continued faithfulness in him because we're thankful for what he's done. People of God that get the gospel deep down on the inside are people who have real joy and thankfulness in their lives. You don't have to pry them open real deep to see that they're happy of what Jesus has done. Jesus has been good. So this leads us to verse 20. The biggest warning here, this is a huge warning. Verse 20, let's read it. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. In verses 17 through 19 that we just looked at, Jesus made it clear that the law doesn't go away. For his disciples. But in verse 20, and moving forward in this chapter, he's going to clarify for us exactly what God's law is and what it means to embrace and follow the law of God as a disciple. Now, this verse, when Jesus preached this, my guess is that there was a gasp in the audience. He says, unless your righteousness, and, and the word we have in this translation is surpasses, but if you look at it in the Greek, it is far and away surpasses. It's so much greater that you can't even compare it. Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to be way, way greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. Jesus says these words. And if you're a first century Jew, 
like the most righteous people ever in the history of the earth that you've ever seen or heard about are the Pharisees. They just don't keep the Ten Commandments. They keep their, the rabbi said there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. They keep all 613. And that's not enough for a Pharisee. He says they, they add hundreds of more commands to the 613 that are already there. So they build a fence around the commandments. I get on the subway a lot of times on Broad Street. And there's a line at the subway so that you don't step over that line and fall into the subway. Anybody ever been there? Now imagine what the Pharisees would do with that. we got to put another line a couple feet behind that line because I might do that, and then another line, and I end up, I'm on Broad Street, not down in the subway. i got to stay so far away from the possibility. Listen, the Pharisees had all kinds of laws. Some of you remember the story in John chapter 9. Jesus heals a man who has been blind from birth, and if you remember that story, in his healing... Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud. And the Pharisees catch Jesus on the charge of working on the Sabbath. Because when your saliva hits the dirt, it works to make mud. And they charge him with breaking the Sabbath. That's nowhere in God's law, but it's in their law. And so imagine for a moment you're a first century Jew hearing that your righteousness has to be way greater than the Pharisees. And you're probably thinking, then I have absolutely no hope because these are the best guys. What's going on here? What's going on is Jesus is making a very clear point for us that the righteousness that the Pharisees and the scribes are all about is not the righteousness of God. What they are about is outward righteousness. And what Jesus is saying is that no matter how hard you try, if outward righteousness is what you're doing to please God, you'll never get close to God. Remember in the last verse, he told us that if you mess up, you're still in the kingdom. Here he says, if you get it all right, like the Pharisees did, you're not even in the kingdom. You don't qualify. And so this is a great warning, and he's teaching us a brand new way of keeping God's law and of honoring God. The purpose of the law was never to justify you by your own righteousness. The purpose of the law was always to point you to the Savior. The purpose of the law was always that you would latch on to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I need you to hear this. There are no kingdom citizens that are not connected to the king. If you're not connected to the king... God's not going to look at, I did this and this and this and this. No, you don't make it, but I'm connected to the king. (laughs) I am his son. I believed in him. And so that is the righteousness that gets us into the kingdom. So I want to look for a moment, put up the, um, the checklist here I have. Pharisaical righteousness, it's hard to see up there a little bit, but it's what I would call checklist righteousness. Legalism. You can check it off. 
So I want to compare and contrast that with Jesus' righteousness for just a minute. First of all, how do we define righteousness? Checklist righteousness defines it as a list of do's and don'ts that I can meet if I exercise a lot of discipline. I can make it. I've got to be very disciplined. I've got to work hard at it, but I can check it off. I've done it. I'm righteous. Jesus' righteousness is a heart growing in love for Jesus and others that manifest love through heartfelt obedience to Jesus' commands. Notice I said heartfelt obedience, not perfect obedience, y'all. We don't make it perfectly, but it's about a transformed heart. The effect of righteousness, for checklist righteousness, God is pleased with me as long as I keep the list. If I do really well, he kind of owes me something. Jesus' righteousness looks at it a different way, growing in awareness of my sin and my need for God, but also being transformed more and more by God to reflect his glory in the world. That's what the righteousness I receive from Christ does. It propels me to a heart change that allows God to be glorified through my life. How we deal with people, checklist righteousness, examine for their level of checklist righteousness. Do you meet up to the standard? If you don't measure up, we'll stay away from you because they'll bring you down. Nobody wants to be brought down. That's why the Pharisees had such a problem with Jesus hanging out with sinners, hanging out with tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector, and they didn't like that. He didn't make their checklist. But Jesus' righteousness understands that we are called to live out God's redemptive love, aware of my deep need for God and my God-ordained responsibility to care for others as well, no matter what state they're in, no matter what side of the tracks they're on, no matter what is going on in their life, there is no one that I would ever call unclean. I love the fact that at one point when Jesus heals a leper. He not only says be healed, but he touches a leper. God is inviting us to touch the lives of people around us in whatever state they're in and know that God wants to redeem. And we're part of his redemptive plan. So lastly here, mission to live up to the checklist so I can get God's favor. That's what mission is. And get others to live up to the checklist or get out of the way. But for Jesus' righteousness, mission is becoming a contagious carrier of Jesus' love for a lost world. It's looking for every opportunity to share Jesus with anyone and everyone. I want to look at one last thing on this. There's one word that we can put to checklist righteousness or legalism. And that word is hypocrisy. When any of us fall into legalism, and we probably all do from time to time, it makes us hypocrites. But when we understand the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ and live for him, we can be people of integrity. I can tell on myself all day long because I know that it wasn't my righteousness in the first place that got me in the kingdom. And it's not my righteousness that's going to keep me in the kingdom. So I can tell on myself. I can be honest about my faults and my needs. And I can look to the hope of glory, which is in one person and one person alone, the Lord Jesus Christ.
Let me just say this as I close. Now, I'm going to get in trouble with the New Life family right now. So have some grace for a brother right now. Listen to all of what I'm saying, not just the first phrase. Grace, grace doesn't save you. Now, I know I'm getting in trouble right now. But listen to the rest of this. Grace doesn't save you, but Jesus does. Grace is not a thing that exists by itself apart from the work of Jesus Christ. Grace only exists because of what Jesus has done. It's because Jesus Christ came into this world. It's because Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. It's because Jesus Christ died on an old rugged cross for your sins. It's because Jesus was raised from the tomb on the third day. It's because Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit and he's coming back again with all power in his hands. Grace exists for us. That grace is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So we look to Jesus. God is not calling us in these verses to live a life where we wallow in brokenness as a reason for a passionless, sad, or defeated existence. Legalism will lead you right there every time. But Jesus is inviting you and me to embrace his transformational righteousness that changes everything about our lives while we acknowledge our brokenness and need. With your eyes set on Jesus, you can now experience true joy. You're able to walk in growing freedom, and we become the salt and light of the world as his disciples. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today for the finished work of a great Savior. We thank you, Lord, that everything in this Bible is pointing to him, either forward in the Old Testament or backward in the New. Lord, I pray that we will become such a Jesus people that we know the joy that comes from walking in the steps of our Savior, being empowered step by step to walk with him and to do his work and his mission in the earth. Be with us, Lord God, I pray, in all these ways and glorify your great name in Jesus' name.